Special edition this week. I am Tom Chick, and I am here with uh, my colleague and sometime opponent, Bruce. Jer- How do you pronounce your last name? Bruce Jerk, is it? <laughs> well, then uh, you pronounce my name correctly. Uh, and also uh, with us, a very special guest, and I know Bruce and I are very excited to have this person, Chris Taylor. Thank you for hanging out with us today. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Now, a lot of folks know you as like a guy who did some great interplay games. You're involved with like Fallout, Starfleet Command, that sort of thing. Today, me and Bruce couldn't care less about any of that stuff, Chris. So forget all that. We have been playing one of your more recent games, uh, Nemo's War. We uh, It's a solitaire board game. Bruce and I both played it, recorded our scores, and then wrote up our games as a Tom versus Bruce. Uh, I invite listeners to check that out at TomVersusBruce.com. That's T-O-M-V-S-B-R-U-C-E. Uh, and you can see how that went. Uh, but more importantly, we just kind of want to talk now to Chris, the guy who made the game, um, I guess, Bruce, how would you phrase this, about how awesome it is? Or do we do we have any criticisms for him, Bruce? When I ordered the game, I couldn't download it. It had to come in the mail, and I thought that there's no more mail. And here's my problem, too, is when can I play this on the iPad, Chris? Oh, I would. Oh, boy. I'd like to see that happen, actually. That's up to Victory Point. I'm just a designer. You know, I I work with Victory Point. They make the games. They hand make them just for you. That's probably why it took a little extra time to get to you. But uh, it's up to them to do the iOS version. They have all that, you know. They got, like, in-house programmers and everything. So hopefully one day. Well, since you're just the designer then, uh, let's get down to brass tacks. Uh, Bruce, what makes this game worth playing? Let me let me ask you to put it that way. Um, I think that this is probably the only game that simulates what it's like to be a renegade Polish nobleman with undersea capability. Uh, I'm actually glad you brought that up because, uh, Chris, did you know Bruce highlighted some of the more subversive elements of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which is the source material for Nemo's War, your, your board game? Uh, did you know about any of this uh, going into uh, designing a game about 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? Uh, you know, before, it's been so long since I'd read it the first time around, probably back in grade school or something like that, uh, that when I read it the this recently, when I was doing the, the board game design for it, um, I had stumbled across it on Gutenberg Project, and so I had picked it up kind of fresh. And the thing that caught my eye the most was all the, the page-long discussions about fish and the different species of fish and the different names for them. Um, I didn't really catch the subversive parts. Uh, I did like the action. There was a lot of, you know, ship sink, and they go uh, fight off all sorts of animals, and, you know, it was a great action adventure story, but I, I did miss the uh, subversion. I apologize for that. Well, there are a lot of interminable uh, parts of that book as well that I didn't remember from reading it as a kid, which I think means I read the uh, expurgated version. The kid version. Well, well, you know, I noticed, Chris, you were pretty kind to it in the in the designer's notes you wrote for Nemo's War. Uh because I'm, I'm with Bruce. I think it's it, – I don't, 
I don't know that I want to say it doesn't hold up because, of course, it's from a different time, a different style of writing. Uh, but I kind of prefer the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea that has bubbled up in my imagination over the years and that I feel your game brings to life more than the 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea that Jules Verne actually wrote. Uh, I am pretty forgiving of it because it was written, I mean, it, basically the dawn of science fiction. It's what was one of the first true true novels of its kind. And he was pretty prescient. I mean, he, you know, the, the idea of waging economic warfare under the ocean, you know, was kind of ahead of its time. And so I, I am forgiving to it, but I trust me, it's a difficult read, especially reading it. I tried to get my kids to read it. So when we played the game together, they would have more understanding. <laughs> they didn't like it. That was a bad idea. Yeah. That the kids these days raised on their Star Wars and Transformers, by golly. Well, that's why I have to make it an iPad, make it an iPad version, so that they can play yeah. it uh, more easily. We, uh, we tracked down the Disney film, and that went that went over much better. And that because it hits the highlights, it, it tells you know it's it's the adventure story uh, boiled down to its basics. Yeah, you know, I watched the I watched the Disney film as well. Tom told me not to, uh, but I did anyway. Uh, well, the, the cool thing about the Disney film is I, I don't I mean so so much of it is is fifties Disneyfied stuff but man I love the, the the look of it like I love the look of the interior of the submarine certainly the submarine itself even sort of the cheesy special effects um, I, I mean there's so much like affection to the world of Jules Verne in that movie even if there is crazy clunky stuff like a musical number with a seal and a and a ukulele or, or whatever there's more um, than one musical number. Oh, don't remind me. <laughs> yeah. I didn't. I didn't actually watch it till after I'd completed the design for the game because I didn't want to be influenced by the movie. I wanted to be influenced by ah. the book. But it does have the absolute best-looking Nautilus I think has ever been presented. It, it, that's a truly spectacular-looking submarine. Yeah, it is. It's fantastic because you know, unfortunately, the scale is all wrong, right? I mean, they they have this giant undersea, you know, craft. But when you look at it, it especially in like relation to the to the ship, it's it's all wrong. But that's that's technology at the time. I chalked that up to the budget. <laughs> now, Chris, why do we know so much about what the Nautilus looks like? Uh, were, were there illustrations in Jules Verne's original novel? Uh, it seems like there's a very caught – or was it just a matter of him doing a good job of explaining it uh, in, the, in the book, in the text? There were illustrations that were um, available. They, they, they came out with the original novel. Um, you can, if you find on, I think the Gutenberg project, the one of the versions uh, has those illustrations in it. Um, he didn't. He, my memory, you know, it's a little vague. It's been four years or something like that. But I don't think he described it um, to the precision that the Disney film. But for for me, it was even though I had seen the Disney film years and years and years before I ever started doing the, the board game design, the design still stuck with me. So as I'm working on the board game, the Disney film Nautilus is in my head, and I couldn't get rid of it. Well, it certainly shows that, like, I love just the adorable little counter. That I, I know that uh, I think a fellow named Tim Allen did the graphics for you, but I, I love the adorable little Nautilus counter. Uh, like, if I were to mount somewhere a piece from this game for display, it would be that little Nautilus counter. Because <laughs> it's kind of, it's it can't look as elongated as I think the Nautilus is supposed to be. It's kind of a cute little stumpy Nautilus, <laughs> so it'll fit on the square chit. Uh -oh. Yeah, and, and it's a good looking, that's definitely... Uh the best looking of the ship pieces and stuff like that. You, you know, with the the victory point, you know, four years ago, we didn't have the in-house artists, and we kind of clawed that together. It, it looked pretty good at the time. It, it's it's lost some of its luster. And uh, so if we uh, get around to doing the second edition or the gold banner edition, I'm sure it'll have all new art. Mm -hmm. Now, have you seen uh, Tracy Baker's uh, redesign that he did? 
I did. I was using that as a, a, one of my uh, computer desktop backgrounds for a while because I think it's spectacular. It's really it's nice graphic design. Uh, have you seen, before we talk more about Nemo's War, uh, Chris, have you seen any other representations of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea or Captain Nemo in specific uh, that, that you liked? Uh, you know, there was a really bad TV movie that came out in the 1970s that I've got like a vague childhood memory of, uh, but I tried tracking it down recently and it's really bad. Uh, it was horrible. Um, is that with Michael Caine? Hmm? I'm sorry? Is, it, is, that with, is that with Michael Caine? No, 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 no. That was like a later version. That was like an 80s or something like that. This one was like a 70s. It was supposed to be a pilot for a new, you know, Captain Nemo under the water adventure TV series. Mm -hmm. And it really stunk. It was it was horrible. It was, you know, he's like they find not a Nemo in the Nautilus. He's in suspended animation. They bring him into the 70s. It's nuclear powered submarine. And, oh. and it was horrible. It really bad. Um, th there was an anime. uh Blue, oh crud! Yeah, some Japanese anime um, that was uh, had a, a nice looking Nautilus as well. But you know, it, they're, I, they're supposedly doing a new movie. Disney is, and I'd really like to see what they do with it because I think it is at its heart, it's a great adventure story. And I think if you did it with modern modern production values, it could be pretty pretty neat up on the screen. So hopefully isn't, we'll see it. Isn't that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, is isn't that Brad Pitt's production company? Like, isn't his name somehow attached to a 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea update? I think so, in the Ned Land. I think he's supposed to play Ned Land or something like that. I, that's real. I haven't heard news about it recently, um, but that does seem very familiar. I think you're right. Uh, so there have been various goofy representations of Nemo. I, I don't want to color your uh, response, but there have been various representations of Nemo from, like, James Mason's proper Englishman uh, in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie. I think he's just uh, a sort of a taciturn fellow with a with a turban. Um, <laughs> That's can, one can you, describing. Yeah, can you describe for us, Chris Taylor, your own personal conception? Like, if you were to visualize or cinematically realize Captain Nemo, does anything come to mind for you? I like, guess there oh. maybe someone you would cast, or what does he look like? What what have other people gotten wrong and right? Do you feel? You know, I would. Oh boy, um, if I could cast any actor, uh, there was that guy who played James Bond. I forget his name, uh, Sean Connery. Yeah, he would be perfect. Mm. Um, he, I, you know, he did uh, his role in Hunt for Red October, actually pretty Nemo esque because he had that. Oh yeah, very good. Of course, you know. Um, kind of drive in him. He he needed to see this through, regardless of any of the consequences. And to me, that's pretty. That's a defining characteristic of Nemo is that he is really the most driven person uh, in the story. More than anyone else, he is so passionate about what he's doing and what the causes that he believes. And he kind of, you know, at times, kind of loses himself into that and becomes just about the mission and less about the man. Uh, when was Moby Dick written? Does Nemo predate Ahab? Or vice versa. Oh, I think Moby Dick was earlier because Moby Dick was based on a, a true story um, where a uh, sperm whale uh, attacked the ship and sunk it. And there was, you know, the, the whalers had survived in this boat and they came back and um, years later, someone wrote novelized it effectively. But it, I think that happened in like 1850s where Nemo, uh, 20,000 Leagues is like 18, I want 1880, something like that, right? I think it's... Is it is it that that late? You might be right. You might be right. But the uh, I think doesn't the twenty thousand leagues under the sea make a, a kind of a reference to Moby Dick or like uh, some kind of sperm whale destroying a ship? Um, I don't know if that was a direct 
uh, reference or whether that was uh, um, just a coincidence. I can't remember. It definitely does open with this idea that there's something out in the water that they think is a creature destroying ships. Sure. Um, So I wouldn't be surprised if there was some of the same sort of inspiration for Jules Verne and Melville. Um, So, uh, 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 Bruce, anyone come to mind for you? Like, if you were to to cinematically realize Captain Nemo, uh, because one of the things that I think gets lost and that comes up when you talk about the subversive elements that, that were elided out of Jules Verne's novel are Nemo's ethnic background. And traditionally, you know, we think of James Mason. Chris Taylor himself just brought up Sean Connery, very proper Welsh actor. Uh, Bruce, does anything come to mind for you? Uh, I would pick Max von Sydow. No, stop, you jerk. God, you're such a jerk. You're stealing my answer. Bruce, get off of this podcast. Huh. Oh, my God. I can't believe I asked you before I said my pick. You're such yeah. a jerk. That's wonderful. That's a great, great pick. That is Max von Sydow would be awesome. Yeah, don't give Bruce all the credit for it. Oh, I am. Bruce, he said it first. (laughs) Gum it. Fine, I'm going to change my answer to... uh, For for uh, all we know, you could have been... Yeah, for all we know, you could have been thinking of Harvey Keitel. (laughs) Oh, good Lord. (laughs) Well, I'm happy... You know, I just saw him recently in Bad Lieutenant. I'm trying to imagine him in his Bad Lieutenant role as Captain Nemo, and it's just not working. No. Well, the awesome thing, though... Chris, that I sort of feel is I, I would love some weird off-kilter, non-safe interpretation of Captain Nemo just for the creative value of it. Uh, so in a way, I, I would not mind if somebody thinks they can do this cool interpretation of Nemo casting Harvey Keitel, by golly, have at it. I want to see that. <laughs> there was a – so this guy, I'm not going to be able to pronounce his last name. His name is like something like Timur Bekmambetov. He oh, the Russian – yeah, yeah. He did a movie called Wanted, and he did Night Watch and Day Watch in Russia. Uh, for a while, he was slated to do uh, a remake of Moby Dick, an update of Moby Dick. Wow. And a lot of people complained and are like, no, this isn't the kind of guy who would make a Moby Dick movie. But by golly, I would love to see what that fellow would do with Moby Dick. Um, so by that token, Bruce, yeah, sure. Bring on a Harvey Keitel uh, Nemo. I'm all for that. Okay. Especially now that you stole my answer. God, that's uh, annoying. Yeah. Um, I guess I win that just like I won the game. Uh, so Okay, so here we go, Chris. Bruce thinks he won the game, but I want to ask you about something. I okay. think Bruce screwed up your game by somehow messing up. So uh, we both wrote uh, accounts of our respective solitaire games. In Bruce's game, he claims to have run out of ships to place in the ocean spaces. And what I am thinking is that he did not realize a rule that when you sink a ship, if you're doing an attack action for Nemo, and you then go on to sink a second ship in that attack action, you get plus one notoriety, which will automatically move the notoriety track up enough if you somehow deplete the initial box of ships to where the first level of notoriety reinforcements come into play. Um, so, do as the game designer, do you think that do you think it could ever happen that that first bit of ships could be depleted? Did Bruce play wrong? I guess is what I'm asking. Uh, you know, I've seen it get close in in the games that I've done personally, and it's probably theoretically possible that um, the way the ships are added is one of those things I'd like to clean up for second edition. I guess it's possible, but highly unlikely. I should say it that way. So there you go. go. If, if something if the un, the uh, if the unlikely never happened, then it would be the impossible. <laughs> Uh, Well, let's talk about some of your design choices. Um, I specifically, uh, as 
as you mentioned from the get-go, it was designed to be a solitaire game because you wanted to capture this idea of Nemo alone against the world. Uh, Not alone because he has his other resources, but just Nemo and the Nautilus, his crew, uh, the three three characters from the book, against the rest of the world. Um, uh, As a solitaire game, one of the things that I really like about it is this sense of both the notoriety track, the oceans filling up with enemy ships – there's a, a loss condition where if ever every space is covered with an enemy ship, it's an imperialist victory. Uh, and I don't think you lose the game, but you just lose a lot of points off of your score. Um, so, so tell me a bit about this idea of creating a solitary game and how you went about ratcheting up the tension, uh, keeping the pressure on the player, and making it seem like, hey, everybody's out to get me, uh, feeling hunted, I guess. Well, yeah, I, you know, when I, when I was reading the book, I was trying to envision how it would work as a two-player game, and I was having a lot of difficulty. So I, I'm going to say that I took the easier path by making it a solitaire game. Um, it, I couldn't find a a good series of actions for the opponent player to do that would keep them involved in the game. And making it solitaire, I was able to make it the player versus the system. And then putting the system, I, you're right, I have a lot of different... Um, I like to call them pressures, just things to keep the pressure on, just things to keep the player, you know, having to move around the world and clean things up and having hopefully more. You should feel as you're playing the game that there's more things that you want to do than you have time or actions to accomplish. Because then you're you're under that pressure and you have to make quick decisions or decisions that are, you know, Maybe if I, if I do this, I'll be able to do that, but I won't be able to do this thing. And that, I think, is more interesting than just roll a bunch of dice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, do you have – this is the question that I have for you about the system. Because you, you just mentioned you know, playing against the system. But I think there are different kinds of systems. And, and your system uh, – I'm not talking about just – I'm talking just the game mechanics – it's very much based on just the die rolls, and you can, you know, you make decisions, and and there's a very prominent uh, luck factor there. Mm-hmm. Whereas, whereas other systems where I think you can sort of stack things in your favor, and you sort of learn the optimal way to to uh, play through different parts of the game. For example, uh, the Lord of the Rings uh, uh, board game, the original Reiner Kinesia's initial one uh, comes to mind, where you sort of <clears throat> you're going to have the same uh, encounters every time, and you know that you're going to go into each encounter. Uh, needing X, Y, or Z, and uh, you sort of eventually get where you get to play the game in a certain way, and it kind of always plays that way. <clears throat> I feel that that's a much more overt system uh, as opposed to uh, sort of where you just kind of go around and do things, and the game advances, and, and things happen, and uh, you react. Um, does Do you see that kind of, of dichotomy or, or sort of a spectrum of, of systems or, or, or not? I you know. Sure, absolutely. There's a bunch of different ways of approaching, um, especially when you have solitaire or cooperative games, because the, the Lord of the Rings, the Kinesian games, it's a wonderful game, but, uh, you know, like on many cooperative games, it, it can lend itself to, like, one player directing it. Um, yeah. And I, I, when we play it, we always try to make decisions for ourselves. And I, I think that's one of the things that I like about the solitaire games is that, there's no other person telling you what to do, so you have to do these things. You have to figure out the right path. The dice are definitely there to keep it so there is no one optimal decision. So that no matter what you do, no matter how you stack the deck, 
the deck, there's still a chance of failure. Um, and the game is intentionally kind of hard and difficult because as a solitaire game, if you could beat it very easily, if you could easily come up with these <laughs> decision, you know, the, the right decision every time, then you wouldn't play it very often. When it would lose a lot of its replayability. You know, I wanted to ask you, Chris, about the difficulty level because I think I've played maybe five or six games, and I don't think I've ever gotten maybe once. I think I've once gotten a bona fide success. You know, for the most part, I'm constantly getting inconsequential. So I wanted to ask you, do I just suck? Are the dice bad? Did you mean it to be so hard? But when you just now said that, Chris, I'm reminded of some other solitaire games, uh, including a couple of decent ones from Victory Point Games, where I, I won on the second time and felt like I was kind of done with it. Uh, and it created this sense, I don't know if it was too easy or if I got lucky, but I, I think part of what keeps me coming back to Nemo's War is that I keep getting inconsequential results. Uh, so it does feel hard, and I'm, I'm kind of glad to hear you say that that's an intentional design choice that you made. We purposely set the bar kind of high. We, When we were playtesting the game, we added out to these different playtesters are getting their scores back and we're looking at things. And then at the very last moment, we kind of rounded it up a little bit just to make it a little bit more difficult. And that was intentional because we were we – were, our thoughts were as we could always – if we made the game too easy, you would. You'd feel like you've accomplished it. You've beat it. You, you set it aside. If we make the game intentionally a little bit on the, the difficult side to get those good scores – um, then you'll keep going back and trying it again. We may, you know, I'm looking back, one of the things, again, I, I kind of talked about the second edition a little bit. One of the things I'd like to clean up is the scoring system. Uh, and one is to make sure that it is possible, because I'm not sure right now if it's even possible to get a triumphant success. <laughs> I, I've never personally gotten one myself. I usually get middle of the road at best, but then again, I'm, I'm a very bad you know. So the, basically the game, uh, you need to nerf the systems. <laughs> the, the, I the think game I, looking at it after having released it and it being out there for so while, I think it's a, I think it's a little too difficult to get the really good victories. Um, and, uh, you know, that needs to be tweaked a little bit. It just makes them memorable. Sure. Oh, boy, I I'll say that. that. Well, but I got to say, though, Bruce, I mean, even my failures have been incredibly memorable. And, I, you know, some of the moments in our game, like, for instance, uh, and I want to talk about how the systems lead to a lot of replay value. But part of the replay value, too, is uh, just the randomness of the cards and the dice, the face down ships, the treasures. But when Bruce and I were playing, and I'd never had this before, I had this amazingly unlikely and therefore impossible run. <laughs> Where for like 15 weeks I didn't draw an event card, uh, and that you know that's one of the really important game clocks. And I love the way that you model the game clock by stacking the deck with a warning, that hollow explosion card, to let you know that the maelstrom card, the big dramatic finale, is is on the way. Um, but you know for the first time I, I played a game that I knew that was never going to come into play because this string of crazy rolls meant I wasn't drawing adventure cards so that deck was still kind of full for me um, but in, in addition to the, to the to the inherent randomness adding replay I, I want to call out two systems that I think add an, a replay value above and beyond just the randomness of hey what's going to happen this time uh, one of the systems is the tension between uh, when you sink a ship, scoring it for victory points, or applying it to salvage for those upgrades. Uh, those both figured very prominently in the plays that Bruce and I wrote up. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, that system, because I think that adds some great replay value with a, a kind of an almost tech tree that you can climb. Yeah, well, we, 
That was the the adding the um, the salvage for upgrading your ship. That came a little later. That wasn't in the very original design, mm-hmm. but it was apparent that we wanted the player to have more decisions about how, uh, you know, more decisions that he can make to improve his game and to change kind of his style of game to uh, augment the motivation system, which came in later too. Mm-hmm. Um, and we we actually ran out of counters, and so reusing the ship counters as the salvage was just to, you know, keep every little bit of utility out of what limited counters we had. Hmm. Um, it was, only, I mean, I, it was intentional, but it was intentionally, it was like accidentally intentional. It was, you know, how do we solve this problem? Oh, solve this problem this way to work in the final version. And yeah, and the outcome of that is, you know, I'm like, okay, well, this time I want to play and get the periscope, or you know, next time I want to make sure to get that uh, additional armor because I was having trouble with warships. Uh, I just love how that feels different each time you play, and, and tweaks the, the rules. The fact that you're having problems with warships, though, is that's something that's not going to be fixed necessarily in the next game because the ships may not come out the same way, right? So you can't really react. That's that's one of the the uh, the consequences of having a very luck. You know, a, a lot of luck in the in the system is that you you can only tweak your strategy so much because the reason you maybe having have had a problem with warships is the same reason that you, had a, you didn't get a lot of events. You just rolled bad dice. Right. Well, I will say though, Bruce. Oh, go ahead, Chris. Oh, I was going to say that's absolutely true. I mean, part of the, the game is asking you at times to react to what's happening, depending upon what cards come up, what ships come up, you know, what oceans are filling up, because you've got that dice roll at the beginning of every turn determining how the oceans are filling up, and you may not be able to control that, so you have to react to it. And that's – it was kind of that part of that push-pull mechanism where I want the player to feel threats from all these different sides, so he has to, using his limited resources, make the best possible decision, and that's a very tactical decision. It's, it's hard to hold an overwhelming strategy right. um, when you do that, so that's why we, we give the player an out when it comes to changing his motivation, because, the, because what you do really determines what victory points you get and how you get right. them. Um, it was very important that the player at least be able to react at some point during the game and flop what what direction he was going for victory points. Yeah, I feel like that's kind of like the, uh, you're, you're sort of the, in a way, I mean, you're Nemo, but you're also sorts of, uh, sort of kind of like Professor Aranax because you really do go for a ride on the Nautilus. I mean, you <laughs> don't you don't have control of what's going on, and sort of, you know, Nemo's kind of taking you through things, and you just have to react, and you really, I feel like rather than, than creating a strategy for the next game, you're really kind of tweaking your strategy for the current game, and you have to, that's which is what's great about the upgrades, you can sort of tweak the way things are going, and if you know, if, yeah, if a lot of warships came up, then not next game, but this game, you need to get the upgrade. If, if you look like um, you know you're getting a lot of treasures uh, and and have depleted the oceans and haven't got a lot of uh, victory points otherwise, then you go ahead and get that arcane library. You now, so it's 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 an in-game kind of reactivity that that, that is rewarded. But I, what I also like about it, though, Bruce, is as you play the game and learn the systems better and and, and the components, you see. Uh, an expected progression, and I want to give an example with uh, the upgrades. So one of the ways that the, the calendar and the notoriety track fold in ships into the mix is they start adding more warships. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 the stack of, of reinforcements becomes more dangerous as it goes on. So what you – and you are going to have to respond to that some way or the other, even if it's just – ignoring warships, you know, stalking to try to pick out easier ships to fight. Like, that's something that's going to happen every game, is that warships are going to become an increasing part of the mix. So 
two of the different options you have, for instance, to respond to that, and you, it's generally going to be mutually exclusive. It would be really expensive to do both of them. But one thing you can do is early on refit the Nautilus with monstrous design, which lowers your uh, notoriety hit. Mm -hmm. um, the idea being, and I love sort of puzzling out and parsing what fiction Chris is getting at with his design, but it seems like the idea is Monstrous Design is making the Nautilus look more like a creature and less like a, a ship that can be hunted, I guess. Um, but so that's one way is you can try to manage notoriety there, or you can go straight to the additional armor to protect against uh, being attacked by the warships. Uh, so it's sort of like, you're right, Bruce, there's a lot of luck, but one thing you know is that warships will be hunting you. So if this game, maybe I went for monstrous design to, to try to mitigate that and get away from them to, and reduce them from coming out, maybe next time I'm like, well, screw that, I'm just going to take them head on with additional armor. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I love that bit. Now, now, Chris, you've also alluded a couple of times to the, the motive system, which you mm -hmm. said was also added later in the game. Uh, I would have to say that is, uh, yeah, I'll go, yeah, I'll put this on the table. I think that is my single favorite thing about Nemo's War. Yeah, I second um, that. Okay, Bruce, once again, Bruce stealing my answers. Oh, so <laughs> annoying. Uh, well, Bruce, why would it be your favorite? What what makes it special to you? Uh, so. I like the fact that it gives you the ability to mitigate. Uh, it sort it sort of takes your it takes the luck a little bit out of it because no matter where no matter what position you're in, uh, you know at that point in the game, uh, you um, you're able to sort of make another assessment and say, okay, this really hasn't gone that well for me. Uh, sinking these uh, these ships, I haven't really encountered a lot of ships that I've sunk or I haven't been able to, to get them. So uh, I'm just going to go for science, and that therefore I don't even I'm not penalized for that. Um, so that's one thing. But the other thing that I really like about it is the um, the fact that uh, it, in your trade off is that you don't get that unless you risk Nemo. Right, so it's 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 a nice little story where uh, you know you get to um, you you get to sort of play you know role play Nemo a little bit and decide why he's uh, you know engaging on this crusade, but also you have the um, the uh, a reward uh, that also mitigates a little bit of the loss of Nemo and it and it ties in thematically I think for him kind of becoming a little unstable, um, but uh, but I like that it's a it's a um, it's a mechanism that only triggers if you um, you've been knocked back a little bit on Nemo. Because if you haven't, then you must be doing so well that you don't really need to stick with what you got stuck with uh, in terms of what your victory points are. Uh, and and for me, from uh, all of that that Bruce that Bruce that you mentioned mechanically is also yeah partly what I love about it. I love about that, that you don't really know what the end game is going to be until you've made a little bit of progress into the the early game, and you can sort of guess, okay, here's where I want to go. But but more to the point, one of the things I love about it, uh, and it's going to sound a little far-fetched, but I want to relate it to one of my favorite games that I've recently played, uh, and that's Crystal Dynamics' reboot of Tomb Raider. Uh, and it's going to sound a little weird, so bear with me for a second. Uh, but in Tomb Raider, the gameplay mechanics are all in service of character development for Laura Croft. You know, she starts out shipwrecked, she's helpless, she's, she's, uh, she, she's vulnerable, she's frightened, she's hungry. Uh, and as gameplay mechanics get folded in, they introduce things like, okay, well, she gets experience points for getting food, that addresses her hunger. Uh, as she, she fights more people, 
she unlocks on the skill tree these more brutal finishing moves. Uh, and that sort of, as she goes up a skill tree, rather than just giving her more points of damage, it gives her more brutal, determined animations with how she dispatches bad guys. Uh, even the gameplay mechanics of the little, the little climbing stuff is animated differently early in the game versus later in the game. And early on, a tense scene might be her just walking across a log, but later on in the game, a similar tense scene is her leaping from a burning building onto the wing of a crashed airplane and then swinging from a helicopter and just doing this crazy action movie stuff. So all of this animation and gameplay mechanics goes in the development of Laura Croft from a vulnerable, shipwrecked uh, victim to this action heroine who we all know uh, from the previous games. So similarly, I feel that wow. uh, I, right. But here's the thing. Similarly, I feel that the, the gameplay mechanics of how you play Nemo's War, you know wh- how it's going to score, how well you are going to do, is based on your choices of Nemo's character development. Like you mentioned, Bruce, as he gets quote unquote damaged, and that's not really accurate because it's his I think it's called his commitment track. As he's basically more and more pressed by the situation, he gets more effective. Right, and then that's it true. Is, and then at a certain point, he then has to decide, and you, the player, kind of as Nemo, uh, how what kind of game this is going to be. You know, this the, the the mechanics of Nemo's war are decided by your choices of character development uh, about Nemo. Uh, and I love that. You know, I, I love how that's character development expressed through gameplay mechanics. Um, well, that's neat. I, I, I really, I mean, I, I think it's, you've kind of hit the, uh, the nail on the head there. Um, it was put in there, the motivation, the whole reason was, well, one, is we wanted it to kind of feel like a little mini role-playing game. And we really wanted you to feel more like you were Nemo. And there weren't enough decisions, choices beyond some of the card play and stuff like that. The other one was we wanted to give an idea for what players needed to do at the beginning of the game, right? Because there was all these different ways you could go and all these different actions. And unless there's some kind of direction, the game started out really um, kind of wimpy. Uh, And then during the development, this is what Alan Emmerich and Vince DiNardo at uh, Victory Point really, really helped with, was the whole motivation system. This is uh, something that we all sat around, played the game, and we were. it was like, it was almost there, but not quite. It really needed something to elevate it, and we came up with the motivation system, and more importantly, letting you change, letting you reach that point as Nemo that it, you were able to evaluate the board and figure out where you needed to go towards the end game to, to be as successful as possible. And uh, out, out, if that that was not originally designed that way, and that was something that only happened because we played the game a lot and noticed, uh, we observed that it's, something was needed at that point. Can either of you think of an analog for that in another game? Like where you play for a while and then mid-game you're deciding, okay, what, what are the victory conditions going to be now? You know where the, where where the game will unfold completely differently from one play to, through to the other based on a choice you make in game. Uh, maybe mm-hmm. Twilight Imperium three or something like that. I mean, there's you can kind of go for the guess, political victory or go for an economic victory or go for a military victory, something along those lines. You know, kind of a four X game. And the goal cards, the way the goal cards in Twilight Imperium unfold over time, you don't know them at first when you first start playing, but as you play. Those, those victory point goals, I think, if I'm not mistaken, don't cards get turned up to determine how you win the game? Yeah. Yeah. All right, that's a good yeah. one. 
That's a good one. Yeah, I can't. I'm, I'm trying to think one. I'm sure that there's some. Uh, I'm sure there's some war game where you either make a commitment to, I don't know, capture Stalingrad or or invade the Caucasus. But I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm coming. I'm drawing a blank. Uh, Bruce, as far not, as not everything's about World War Two, Bruce. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> uh, Chris, um, uh, I want to read something out of the rules to you right here. I'm going to call you out right now. Uh-oh. Section yeah, section 3.4 of the official rulebook for Nemo's War reads, and this is under the setup section, remove the sunk ship and cannon markers. Oh. They are only used in the expansion kit. Chris Taylor, where is my expansion kit? Uh, we'll have to see. Um, no, you know, a little funny note about those markers is when we were designing the game, we, we ended up with two extra... Uh, round counters. Uh-huh. And Alan Emmerich being the guy he is, he hates blank counters. He said, <laughs> put something on there. So I went, okay, well, we got this. We'll just throw that on there. What does it do? I, I don't know yet. We'll, you know, if we ever do an expansion kit, we'll make up something. But at the time we printed the game originally, we had no idea what those little counters would do. You know, because if there's one thing I hate worse than uh, blank counters, it's when a company ends up in that situation and they just put the company logo on a counter. <laughs> like, why are you doing that? Am I going to punch this out and keep it? Uh, why is, why are well, some you... of them use them for actually for like proof of. In the old days, they used to use them yes. for proof of purchase. Right. Game, you can get time for too. that. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I mean, it's, it's funny. I just want to add a little side note about that, which is that um, you know, in the old days, it, it's it's just I think it's a little bit of a um, uh, sort of. It shows how the board game industry has grown up a little bit. That uh, and I remember in the old days they did that. Avalon Hill did that with uh, the. Uh, sorry, bring this up again. Top Turning Point Stalingrad, which is a game about World War Two, and um, they basically had a bunch of blank counters. You know, they had a, you know several counter sheets, and they had a bunch of blank counters that they weren't going to use. And so they said, "Well, let's print the um, the." Uh, Counters these counters uh, for the expansion set, but they of course didn't have the ability to print the rules and all the other stuff that they needed, which they ended up printing in the general. And everybody got so angry. They're like, "Oh, this is just a scam. This is a way to you know to um, make people buy the general and just a rip off. You know, why didn't you just put it in the game?" And of course, you know, not realizing that if you know they could put the components in the game, but Put it, put in, you know, make a bigger rule book and everything would cost more money, and so the game would cost more money. Um, but I think now that's just cool that you know there's just the extra stuff and there's this kind of, uh, you know, expansion kit that magically just doesn't exist and nobody really is too upset about it. I am. What's the matter? I'm upset. I, I want to oh, use okay. those uh, sunk ship and cannon markers. <laughs> you, know, you, can, uh, you, know, I, you know, you could write your own expansion set before they even get a chance to. I, sorry, I am not a game designer. There are many things that I can do, but but what Chris Taylor does, I cannot do. So, <laughs> uh, as a player, I just got uh, like a Combat Commander expansion, and they had like a full half sheet of counters that were blank, and it, it blew my mind. I, I was struggling to figure out why they couldn't, you know, cut the counter sheet in half or put something there. It was really annoying. It bugged me. I have some game, oh, I wish I could remember, there's some card game, it might be an LCG that I have, that comes with blank cards, and the instructions, they say, write your own card. <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to write my own cards. Uh, Chris, briefly, let's talk about the awesome epilogue matrix that you have okay. in there. So there are four victory conditions, uh, and I think each, or four uh, commitment choices and then there are uh, i think five victory levels so you've mm-hmm. got these 20 little snippets of text that explain what happens to captain nemo uh that must have been kind of fun to write yeah 
those were completely fun to write. That was actually something that um, I knew from the very beginning was going to be in the game, and I spent a lot of time playing with that and trying to capture the Jules Verne voice uh, and making them so that these little snippets felt like they fit in with the whole 20,000 Leagues world. It was a lot of fun. Do you have a favorite? Uh, you know, I thought someone was going to ask me that. I just pulled up my sheet just to look at them again. Um, hmm. I know, you know Bruce's favorite. I, I don't have a favorite. I, I it's, you're, that's like asking me, you know, because these are all little bits of writing, except for the the uh, anti-imperialism success, which is the historical setting. These are all things that I had a chance to tweak and make up. So I, you can't ask me to name a favorite. <laughs> all right, then I'm going to ask Bruce. Bruce, what is your favorite uh, victory condition? Uh, <clears throat> that would require me to actually get the uh, sheet out and read them. <laughs> So that's well, completely unfair. Well, the uh, thing is, Bruce is like me, I'm guessing, in that I certainly have never seen one of the triumphs. Like I said, yeah. I think I've once seen a success, but I mainly am just familiar with the inconsequential <laughs> and failure categories. Well, can, can I can I admit something? I actually haven't read the ones that I haven't gotten. Oh, because that would be like a spoiler. Ooh. Yeah, because oh, it's a spoiler. Oh, I like oh, that. I, yeah. do, I do as well. So, Bruce, you've got some cool uh, little tidbits about what happens to Nemo in store for you when you finally get triumphs. Wow, that's going to be uh, – I have a feeling it's going to be, uh, you know, some time from now. <laughs> but uh, I'm looking forward to it, and I actually and I absolutely won't read them beforehand. But I did enjoy the uh, the, the idea that I was going to sort of uh, have my, uh, uh, my journal sold on eBay and uh, just kind of fade off into the world and just kind of – Fade away and have a you know martini somewhere, but but uh, it could have been much better. I will say, Bruce, that one of the triumphs is the world basically ending in economic uh, collapse. Oh, oh, right, wow, yeah, yeah. yeah. when you need it. <laughs> this was um when I I, I, don't, I know you don't really want to talk about the computer game stuff, but this came right out of the different endings we had for Fallout. I, I think that's oh. an incredibly powerful idea where the game kind of gives you feedback about how you performed. Um, and so I stole it from myself. No, that makes perfect sense, Chris. I didn't even think of that. But, yeah, absolutely. That's great. That's very nice. Uh, Chris, uh, I apologize for not knowing this, but can you tell folks listening, uh, what are some of the other board games that you've made? Uh, I have done a lot of stuff through Victory Point uh, games. Um, some of the other games I've done, I've done a States of Siege game called Legions of Darkness, which is the whole fantasy castle siege version of that. Um, I've also done uh, the first game I did for them was Fleets 2025, 20, uh, a, a little real simple card-driven war game uh, set in the East China Sea, uh, kind of topical these days, I guess. Um, uh, I did Astra Titanus, which yes. is a funny name, but it's basically uh, over, over in space. Yeah. And uh, that's probably the game that I'm besides Nemo's War, which I. You know, Nemo's World was so accidental, the way it came together and and the way it turned out and uh, the way people have responded to it really uh, kind of, you know, is very satisfying. Um, but Astro Titanus is my second favorite game uh, out of the whole bunch. And that one is just because the idea of one ship versus many ships is appealing, the asymmetric uh, warfare to it, uh, the fact that it's a solitaire game that uses cards to kind of drive the big, bad, nasty uh, spacecraft towards you. Um, a lot of the little mechanics in the game I'm really proud of. Uh, I think it tells a neat little story. Um, and those three are available through Victory Point Games? Yes, they are. Yes, they good are. Good to know. Okay, good. Uh, what uh, can, So I presume you are then into board gaming in general. 
Yes, very much. I have been for a, a very long time. I've been going to uh, game conventions since the mid-80s. I've been running role-playing games and playing board games since the days of Melee and Wizard and Ogre. And uh, I, I think board gaming is such a, a good pastime for, well, it's just very enjoyable and it's something to do with friends. It's very social, far more social than, uh, uh, you know, watching TV or something like that. So I'd rather board game any day of the week than sit at home. I've had uh, a, a regular sort of land gathering at my house every week uh, for, uh, I don't know, well over 10 years. Uh, and a strange thing has happened in the last two, three years. Uh, we increasingly play more board games than computer games. I mean, I love the social value of playing a land game and then afterwards decompressing and everybody talking about it. But we find ourselves gravitating more and more to sitting around the table and playing things with each other rather than at the land with our backs to each other, you know, virtually together. Uh, so as someone who has been with the scene for pretty much the whole run of it, Chris, uh, what do you feel about the state of board gaming today? Well, I, I think the biggest thing that's happened recently is the, the advent of Kickstarter, uh, because we're seeing a lot of games that a typical publisher may not pick up or uh, – you know, may not bring the market, but now because of Kickstarter, you're seeing a a lot more titles. You're seeing a lot more um, new entries from different small publishers coming into it, and uh, some games are being, you know, incredibly uh, well received. Uh, Zombie Side, for example, which I, I uh, kickstarted myself, and I really enjoy the game. I think it's a wonderful game. But you know, they raised, they just raised two and a half million dollars um, doing a board game, and it's just, you know, kind of blows me away. But I think now, I mean, it's better than it's been. Days of Wonder, Fantasy Flight, uh, those are those. Anything from those two publishers, I, I pick up the vast majority of their, their their games, and I really enjoy them. It's a really good time to be playing board games. Do you have like a, a regular group? Do you just have every now and then invite folks over? You mentioned you've got kids. Do you do you press your kids into service? Oh, <laughs> all of the above. Uh, I get together every Saturday here at Interplay. Uh, with some friends of mine uh, who are uh, longtime friends, ex-center players themselves. Uh, some of them still work in the industry, the video games industry, and we get together and play board games every Saturday. We go out to dinner and come over here and play until 2 a.m. in the morning. It's wonderful. Um, I belong to a, uh, a local game club, and we get together once a month and we play at the Duck Club, uh, the Orange County Board Gamers Association. Um, we do the conventions three, four, or five times a year. And then, of course, I have my family. And when we go over to you know the in-laws' house for holidays, we bring board games. That's what we do. Um, I play with my kids. Uh, they been playing um, hardcore board games since they were six, seven, eight years old. Uh, they go to this, the conventions with us and stay up all night playing Werewolf, and uh, they have a great old time. They We get together, um, you know, and we'll, we'll play at home, we'll play here at work, we'll play uh, at a local coffee shop, wherever, wherever they'll let us, we'll play games. Would it be weird to say, I wish you were my dad? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Uh, uh, you don't even you. have to answer that. No, that's that's a rhetorical question. Uh, <laughs> I, I know the answer. Uh, Chris, what's what's in uh, heavy rotation for you guys these days? Oh, you know, we're really bad because we are card-carrying members of the Cold of the New. So we will pick up a game yeah. and we try it out and we will move on to the next thing. And we don't play a lot of things over and over and over. Um, we do have some classics that we will go back to and we'll play anytime. Uh, Kingsburg with the expansions, really good. Well, that's always fun. We like um, Alien Frontiers. Cool. What is Kingsburg? I think I know the name. 
Kingsburg is a uh, strategy dice rolling game. Um, we played it. You have uh, it's like a kingdom building game where you're rolling dice to get resources that you turn around to buy buildings that you use those buildings abilities to get you more resources and more dice. Bruce, um, did you say that we've played it? We played it with Rich uh, a couple of years ago, I think, when I was there. Yeah. Okay. We played it. I and 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 I really, really, really didn't like it. And, <laughs> and play Rich, it. Yeah. Play it with the expansion, and you can mitigate your luck to some extent because there's a lot of things in the expansion. The expansion is really neat because it gives you like six different things that you can add to your game piecemeal, and you can tweak the game uh, to get the right experience. But it it's, it's, doesn't take that long to play. It is very random, which we do kind of like because ra- we find randomness to be chaotic and fun. Um, and it plays five players in about the same amount of time as it takes to play three players. There's really, if we have three to five players, it, it, it doesn't take any longer. Um, but we know it's okay not to like games that I like. That's fine. <laughs> oh, there's going to be, yeah, you're, you're going to have probably some of that in the next ten minutes here, Chris. <laughs> so, um, uh, so, so Kingsburg, yeah, what else is in your, you started to mention another one? Right now I'm playing a lot of uh, Android Netrunner. Uh, I was a big Netrunner fan way back in the day. Uh, Garfield, I think that's a better design than Magic. Um, and now that which, by the way, I, I have to say, Chris, I don't think that's saying much. <laughs> I am so I am so down on just even though Magic has come a long way, I just feel like compared to other card-driven games, Magic to me feels so freaking pedestrian these days. Well, Magic, it's the first. It's been, it's yeah, the granddaddy. Right. It's been around a long time, and the fact that they've been able to keep it going for so long, I think, is pretty impressive. I'm not into Magic like I was. I got out of it. I was I was one of the original alpha buyers. In fact, uh, at the convention that came out, me and my friends were sitting upstairs in our room, and we'd go down to the, to the dealer's room. We'd buy a, a pack of cards, run back up, rip it open, and start playing with it. And we played the game horribly wrong. And we had the best time. Um, we must have gone down and bought, you know, cases of sold the games off, you know, the cards off weeks later, not realizing what we were giving away. I think I could have financed my kids' college if I kept <laughs> the cards that we had bought back then. But it's it is it's, it's an old game. I, I you know Garfield did Netrunner. He also did BattleTech, which I think is a superior game design too, based upon what he had learned through the original Magic. But the fact that they're able to keep it going and it's um, Hasbro's number one gaming brand. I mean, you know, it's it's a big deal. I think it's I think it's a pretty good game. I don't like playing Magic uh, competitively, um, but I'll you know I'll play a you know a cube or do a draft or something like that any day. Chris, let me tell you about another uh, old-time game that's still around these days that you might also enjoy then, uh, a little game called Monopoly. You know, I just went out and bought a Monopoly set. <laughs> no, you didn't. Oh, did. Chris, why are you I... supporting? What are you, what are you doing? What are you going to do with what? a Monopoly set? You're, I'll bet you're going to force your poor kids to play Monopoly, aren't you? I absolutely am. I'm actually taking it to the next Strategicon, and I'm going to set it up in open gaming um, as a social experiment to see if how many people rag on me. Um I, okay, I'll, I yeah, Monopoly, you can put, by the way, Chris, put me down as one of the first to rag on you. <laughs> <laughs> I think Monopoly is a game, this is what, this, I'm very stubborn, I don't know if it's just my bloodline or whatever, but I see Monopoly get ragged on Board Game Geek all the time, and I think it gets an unfair, it just gets an unfair reputation. I think it's an actually a, it's, you know, it's not the world's best game, it's not even the world's okay game, but it's a better game than people make it out to be, especially, you know, obviously, if you play it by the rules as written and don't add in all the house rules and stuff. It's relatively quick, um, and it's, you know, it's. I think it's important to history. 
in, in terms of game design in the United States and around the world, there wouldn't be games like today without games like Monopoly. And I don't think we should, as gamers, put our noses down. If, if people are having a fun time with it, then, hey, more power to them. Uh, That's my excuse. I, I understand. And you, you could apply the same thing to Pong, but I'm never going to sit down and play Pong again. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just being a hard ass. I completely hear that. Like, I hear that a lot, is that Monopoly gets a bad rep because of screwy house rules that people assume are actually part of the design. Uh, yeah, the worst and, is, yeah. you know, I don't want to spend the, we could, I don't want to spend any more time on Monopoly than we need to, but, you know, the free parking rule, that's the one that, right. putting money in the free parking, right. that's what screws up more games than anything else. There are, this know, is... It's a decent, it's, for its age, and, you know, it, look, if you haven't played Monopoly, you're missing something. Even if it's, so now you know that you don't like it, it's everyone, every gamer, every self-proclaimed gamer needs to play Monopoly at least once in their life. Well, I will say it's kind of like with Magic. I just feel there's so many other better card-based deck-building games. Uh, with Monopoly, oddly enough, there's a, uh, a, I think it's a Japanese design, and it's a, I guess it's based on a board game, but it's a Nintendo Wii game uh, with Mario licensing uh, called something like Money Street or Money Town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it has, it's basically Monopoly, and the designer added a sort of a stock market uh, top layer to it, to where you're not just landing on property and, and paying rent, you're also investing in other people's properties. Uh, and it's a great design. And, you know, it's still very much based on Monopoly. There's a lot of luck. What's your role going to be on the die? You're going to land on someone else's property and then just go bankrupt. Um, and it can have these crazy reversals of fortune. But it's basically a Monopoly design tidied up and ported to the Wii. And I think it's brilliant. It's freaking brilliant. So I play that and I can kind of think, yeah, probably at one time Monopoly was a great design. Um, it, it obviously time has moved on and people's tastes have changed and then people have gotten so much better at designing games. But you know, if you, if you don't have a monopoly in your closet, you're kind of missing something. It's not a big deal. If you spend, you know, if you play it once every five years, you know, it's not like your, you know, brain matter is going to hop out of your ears or anything like that. It's not going to kill you. So Bruce, I'm guessing that uh, one of the games Chris just mentioned caught your ear. Uh, did anything stand out for you that he just mentioned? Uh, monopoly. <laughs> Before, before, so you did you did mention uh, Chris a game that Bruce and I have been playing. Uh, Bruce, what's the last game you and I played? Uh, well, <clears throat> we played uh, something about uh, droids. The, these aren't the droids you're looking for. I can't remember. This. I'm so this, not. I can't ahead, remember. Sorry. I'm so There's, not used to affixing the word android in front of it. That's still weird to me. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Netrunner yeah. is a wonderful Yeah. I'm. I'm. I'm, I'm really. Yeah. Go ahead. I think it's uh, it was an incredibly strong design 20 years ago or whenever it first came out, and Fantasy Flight just made it look really good. And the fact that they're supporting it so well, I, I think it's exciting because I've always liked the game. I still have you know 5,000 cards of the original series at home in my library. Um, I'm you know, but the, I'm able to play it now, and I've gone to tournaments over at Blizzard, and you know I've played at the game club, and you look around, and people are carrying boxes of it. It's exciting mm -hmm. to see a really good game get reinvigorated. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that uh, the thing that I like about it is uh, how it it really a it captures the theme so well. B it's asymmetric, which automatically makes it good. And C um, that's kind of a little joke, but not really. And then see the uh, the way in which it you have sort of the um, the 
combination of sort of numerical analysis and just straight out bluffing and sort of a poker style. Uh, I bet you don't think this is an agenda. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, no, you don't. Oh, I know what you think that you know that I know what you're doing kind of mechanic. I, I, I love that. And, and it, it the thing that makes it even better or the thing I think kind of proves it is how well it translates in a really, I think, if you've got to be honest with with yourself, a clunky interface in this thing called Octagon or the Octagon or whatever you want to call it. Um, I mean, it's it, the it, it's 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 workable and and um, uh, and it lets people play. I probably would would never have played it after the, the my initial time if I didn't have Octagon available. But uh, it it doesn't. <clears throat> it, it's very clunky, but the game shines through so much that you can just see how good the game is, uh, even when you're playing against some random guy that's just chatting, uh, and all he says is GG. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm just very, I'm very impressed by that game design. It, the, yeah, the asymmetric and the bluffing aspects alone would make it a, a better game. But then it is so dripping with theme. Every everywhere, every piece, every card, every element reeks of cyberpunk in such a neat way. Uh, they did a great job with it. Uh, Bruce, you uh, do you actually own the cards, or you've just played with me on the online version? Uh, I didn't buy. I didn't buy, uh, bother buying the card. The the way I played it was that uh, a friend of mine, when he was visiting, actually um, uh, a mutual friend of of ours and yours, also Tom. Uh, we were uh, at at the local game store, and and um, <clears throat> we 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 texted him and said, "Hey, you know, we're we're at this store. We want to buy a game that we're going to play this weekend. Uh, what should we do?" And um, he was almost simultaneously texting us, hey, you guys should check out this game, Android Netrunner, uh, which was a weird coincidence. And uh, we had to be standing in a game store, and we bought it. And then uh, we played it a bunch over the weekend. I uh, bought some expansions. And uh, and that's that's the only face-to-face that I've actually ever had with it. The rest of my experience has been on, uh, on the Octagon system. And while Octagon, I think, is a great compromise, uh, I just love, because of that bluffing quality, I just love that as a face-to-face game. And I, yeah. I love specifically... You know, Bruce, you mentioned asymmetry makes everything good. I would defy you to name one game that's asymmetrical that's bad. So Star think Pack about that. Mm, no, yeah, sorry, I'm not going to accept that answer. First of all, because you couldn't play StarCraft II to save your life. And second of all, <laughs> it's not bad. What's the matter with you? Um, but uh, one of the things that I love, you know, the, asymm- the asymmetry isn't just mechanics. You know, StarCraft II... That's some great asymmetry. All of the different sides have different rules and different tools, but you're still playing a real-time strategy game. What I love about the asymmetry in Netrunner is that the game feels, from a psychological perspective and a mechanical perspective, it feels completely different whether you're the corp or the runner. Right. It, it, they're both they're both completely different gameplay experiences. Well, they're, um, they're yeah. They're sim- well, the, you're simulating two completely different things. Which one is being uh, an all powerful fascistic corporation? The other one is being some kind of uh, you know loner autistic uh, computer type guy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the difference between basically already running the world and trying to subvert someone who's running the world. Right. Uh, yeah, and I love so. Okay, let me ask you guys: Which do you prefer playing, the runner or the corp, Chris? What do you oh, lean towards? I, I I like to play the corp. Um, I like the bluffing aspect of it. I like trying to set up the, my systems and luring the runner in. Um, but I'm I'm terribly bad at it. I, I'm the world's worst corporation player. I, I'm the only guy. I went. I've gone to two different tournaments at, at Blizzard, and I've lost every single one of my games, both corporation and runner. Both times I've gone there. Okay, I look forward to playing you at some point then. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, Bruce, what are you in towards? What have you preferred, playing the runner or the corp? Uh, yeah, so I mean, I I enjoy playing uh, the corp, um, and I actually have, I think I've only played the uh, the runner once, and that might have been against you, um, but uh, it was funny because we were at the um, uh, we were at the game store, and my friend bought the game, and we brought it back. He was visiting from out of town, so we just kind of took found the dining room table, opened everything up, started paging through it, and he started reading the rules. And he's like, "Oh yeah, so this is like cyberpunk," and one of uh, uh, one of the players is the uh, is the corporation, and uh, one of the players is going to be, uh, you know, the hacker, or the runner. And so he turns to me and says, "So you're going to want to play the corporation all the time, right?" <laughs> and that was it. And I was like, "Huh, I wonder why he thinks that." But uh, yeah, I do. Uh, I I find it so unnerving playing the runner because the runner has to do all this risk reward assessment, and there is all the hidden information that the runner doesn't have. The runner has to really be proactive. Um, so. Uh, I've been playing this a fair bit with, like, Bruce and another friend of mine. I've been trying to introduce my gaming group to it, um, which is a little difficult because we tend to cluster, and it's not always easy for just to introduce a two-player game. Uh, So fortunately, uh, last night, one of the guys was really eager to see it, and we had two other guys who were willing to try it, and the guy who was eager to see it just wanted to watch. So last night, I, I ran two of my buddies through a test game, and I was really insistent that the one guy who's a really good board gamer and who can be really aggressive and immediately wraps his head around the rules, that he needed to be the runner. And that the other player, who's much slower and meticulous, who basically asks questions about the rules two or three times, the same rule, before he really learns it. (laughs) And that's fine. I'm okay with that. Um, And who gets total analysis paralysis. We even have a joke about you cannot talk to Paul when it's his turn because you will reboot him. (laughs) um, So I was very adamant that Paul, my my sort of more meticulous friend, needed to be the corporation and that Kyle, my really sharp uh, friend who just wraps his head around a board game and will constantly win games the first times he plays them, that he needed to be the runner. And they didn't want to do it that way. They wanted to do it the other way. So I was terrified that it was just going to be a disaster. Um, and that neither of them was going to appreciate it. But to the game's credit, I think they both really took to it anyway. Um, and yeah, and I just love how it's a completely different sensation based on which one you're playing. Uh, Chris, do you do you have a favorite runner and corp yet? No, I uh, I'm, I've just moved beyond playing with the basic decks, and I'm I've got all the little expansions. I'm building my own decks, uh, so I'm trying them all out, and I'm losing with all of them. So it's they're all equally good in my view. Well, and to to also to be fair, like I don't know that I don't I don't know that it's fair to say that you're bad at Netrunner because. And I'm a little surprised that this doesn't bother you, Bruce. There is so much luck involved because the whole point of the game is for the runner to ferret out these agenda cards in the runner's, in the corpse deck. And the corp really cannot ever guarantee 100% that an agenda is protected. Uh, so a lot of it is the runner just almost literally fishing uh, and getting lucky. And Bruce, so that doesn't bother you? No. I, why? You think that I... I don't like luck in games? Is that what you're implying? Yes. I bet the only game you would ever want to play is like uh, Tigris and Euphrates, which doesn't have dice. Reiner Kinesius Tigris and Euphrates? Doesn't yep. have luck? Oh, yeah, you're right. It has no luck except for drawing the tiles out of the bag, which is like one of the 
biggest mechanics in the whole game, and if you don't get what you need, you're screwed, and uh, you have no <clears throat> very little control over that. But what you meant to say, Tom, was that I only like games like Puerto Rico, which uh, are full of analysis paralysis because every move can be kind of predicted, uh, except even then you have the plantations which you draw. But, I, yeah, those don't have as much effect. But, no, I mean, I, I, why do you think that I don't like luck in games? That's a very strange idea. I'm not sure where you got that. I mean, my current favorite digital game uh-huh. of all time right. is uh, Battle of the Bulge by uh, Shenandoah Studio, and that game has a ton of luck. I mean, you could make one attack. <clears throat> I mean, the whole game is about, you know, sort of judging probabilities and and taking your, you know, you rolls your dice and you takes your chances. But uh, but the thing about it is that I'm I think I'm I'm different from Chris in that I tend to play games over and over uh, and, until I sort of get as good at them as I can be uh, or I'm going to be or you know eventually I do stop playing them. But um, I like to examine the system and try to figure out how I can best sort of optimize the system. But I also do appreciate games which have luck, which um, you know. I'll use Battle of the Bulge as the example. You know, you play that game over and over, and you see certain patterns, and and sometimes, uh, you know, a certain attack works out, and sometimes it's a spectacular failure, even though you expected, you know, that it was an easy attack, and and then you have to deal with the consequences. And so, um, I, I sort of see luck as something that's eventually you're going to see all sides of the luck spectrum, and the 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 outcomes you get and how you deal with them are the things that I like. And, and so in, in Netrunner, I mean, yes, you have, as a corp, you're never going to be able to completely protect your, um, your agendas because there's always going to be, you know, there's going to be R and D and there's going to be all your servers and, uh, you know, you're just going to have your, your hand, uh, you know, headquarters. There's always going to be, there's always going to be a card in there somewhere. And, uh, and, and, and sure the runner is going to be, going to be fishing as you put it. Um, but you know, in some games, the uh, the corp will uh, will get a bunch of agendas stolen out of R and D before they can really do anything about it, or they just get lucky draws. Um, and and in some games, they won't. Some games, the 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 runner won't be able to, to get that strategy to work. But in general, in general, because probabilities are what they are, uh, playing good probability based strategies is generally going to work out. So. Um, and I like the variability. I, mean, I, sh- I, I love the fact that in a game like Netrunner, that somebody who doesn't know the game perfectly has a chance of winning, or at least a, can can do well uh, occasionally by just getting some some good luck. I think that that in a, in a in a non competitive game that can uh, that can keep things uh, you know interesting for for people who aren't super skilled at it. Bruce, you just offered an impassioned defense of the game Yahtzee. So you and I are now going to play Yahtzee. Ready? Okay, perfect. Next time versus <laughs> My wife really likes Yahtzee free-for-all, by the way. If you're going to play Yahtzee, play Yahtzee free-for-all. What is that? It sounds awful. What is that? It, it's, it is a five-player game of Yahtzee, but you get to mitigate the luck by going for certain different types of you've got a bunch of cards in front of you. You can claim them if you get the right rolls, and it's uh, more interactive because you have a chance of stealing other people's rolls uh, cards, and uh, there's more decision making. So it's a better version of Yahtzee. Did, did I mention that I wish you were my dad? Did I mention that earlier? <laughs> oh my uh, god, <laughs> so creepy. <laughs> uh, I no, I mean you know I be, growing up with terrible board games. I just I just wished I'd had uh, someone to save me from that. <laughs> Uh, so let's see. Have you guys heard of a game called, and I'm not even sure if this is how you say the name. Uh, this has been popular with our group lately. Cyclades? Cyclades? 
Cycle, is that how you say it? Man, I, I, you know, I'm the I'm the absolute last person you want to ask about pronouncing things. So, uh, <laughs> but you do uh, know the game, like you, you it's, do. It's the one where you're kind of um, auctioning for gods, and you've got yes. all these dudes on a map. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah. That's a great. And game. The, and the gods, you're, I mean, the gods are basically your. They're almost like offices in Puerto Rico. It's what you can do this turn, and mm. only you can do it. So it's it's bidding on actions basically. Um, and then part of where the theming comes in and this wild variability is there's a deck of cards, and it's a very tiny deck, and it'll cycle uh, for mythological monsters, and they tend to break the rules. So you're bidding on what action you're going to be able to do against the other players, but then you've got these little cards that come out that break the rules. Um, and it's a very short game, too, and it's constantly interactive. Um, one of my friends hates it because it tends to end in a sudden victory, which... I don't understand what the problem is there. Most victories are sudden. Um, so it, it's interactive, and it's, it never, if you're playing like a five-player game, it, it's never really excluding any of the players. It doesn't have that kind of snowballing dynamic that can be a big problem with five-player games. A big feature, big reason for that is the variable size map, which I think is very clever. Yes. Um, it, and it's a gorgeous-looking game. It has wonderful bits. I like games that tell good stories, and Cyclades tells a wonderful story. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, all right, what else has been in your rotation lately, Chris? Uh, we've been playing Legends of Andor, which is a cooperative fantasy adventure game. Um, it is uh, uh, more puzzle than I... It's less of a game and more of a puzzle. And I really enjoy it, but I'm not sure why yet. It's um, I need to play it a few more times. But it, it's one of the few games that we've played like three or four times recently. You know, Usually we'll play a game once twice and then move on to something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's quite good. Um, what else? Oh, I've been, you know, I've been getting, I, as I get a little older and a little bit more cranky, I've been moving into uh, war games. And I've been playing a lot of World at War, Eisenbach Gap, and a lot of uh, uh, Conflict of Heroes and Combat Commander and um, Upfront and stuff like that. As I'm, I'm really earning, I'm trying to earn my Grognard um, medals. <laughs> Have you seen this iPad game, Battle of the Bulge, that Bruce was talking about? It's beautiful. It is. It's not only is it a good. It's a. It's a really good war game, I think, because it's it's my kind of casual me war gamey. But the presentation, I'm just impressed that they put together what I think it's one of the nicest looking, nicest UIs, nicest looking iOS games I've ever seen. It's just so well presented, and it's it's got so much depth and detail in its background information. Uh, yeah, it's beautiful. It's well worth, you know, it's a l- little pricey, I think, at, what, 10 bucks or something like that, but I think it's well worth it. It's a very, you know, it's amazing that we're sitting here talking, or at least I think that pricey at $10. Yeah, but, that's what I was thinking. That's that you could, you can't even crazy. buy one of the add-ons for Netrunner for $10. Yeah. <laughs> but it's just a different, you know, it's a different uh, microcosm, you know, over right. there in the iOS uh, apps store where everything's ninety nine cents or it's too damn expensive. Right. But it, but very, very, very good game. Um, and it's nice to see real hex encountery type war games because I, I think that's going to, you know, benefit everyone to have more variety in what type of games they play. Well, and I feel too like there's been such a sea change in design philosophies for non-war games, for board games in general, that I kind of feel like for me, uh, 
Battle of the Bulge represents that kind of sea change seeping into wargaming. Uh, you can also see it, there's, a, there's a computer game called Unity of Command that has a similar approach. But I really like that, you know, you talk about earning your Grognardi stripes. Uh, I feel like I don't need to do that now because I can just play things like Unity of Command and Battle of the Bulge and, and whatever is going to come in the wake of those. Uh, that's been really exciting for me. Because uh, I was so dismissive of Battle of the Bulge when I first sat down with it. And Bruce, you remember this. I was sort of giving you guff about how it was like a historical puzzle game or whatever. Yeah. Um, I know. And fun. I and I, I came around for for yeah. I think once in the history of civilization, Bruce Garrick was right and I was wrong. <laughs> it was amazing. Um, Chris, how do you feel about co-op board games? I really like co-op board games. They they enter our rotation more often, you know, than than some. I guess it's we play. Um, I'm trying to think the firefighting game. Um, oh, I'm looking at it. Flashpoint. Um, is a good co-op game. Uh, is that kind of like a pandemic model, where you're all basically rushing to contain something? Yeah, and that one has dice. Um, it uses dice to generate flare-ups and fires in the house, and you're running your little uh, firefighters around. I got turned on to that one originally because my parents are both uh, retired firefighters. So the theme brought me into it, and I think it's a it's a really interesting little co-op uh, uh, mechanisms in there, uh, if, as long as you can deal with the, the randomness. Uh, those dreaded dice. Bruce, um, is, it, is it real quick? Is it less creepy if I tell Chris Taylor that I wish that his parents were my grandparents? You're <laughs> way off the creepo meter already. Yeah, there's nothing. <laughs> That's so cool to have grandparent firefighters. I love that. <laughs> my yeah, my my stepdad was a 30 year veteran. He was a captain in the Santa Ana Fire Department, and my mom uh, kind of came to it a little later in life. Uh, she worked for about 15 years and became an engineer, so she actually drove the truck and stuff like that. And uh, they uh, both. They are very supportive of my gaming habits. They uh, send me for Christmas and the holidays and birthdays and stuff like that, all sorts of game-related, you know, so I can go get my own games and stuff like that. So you've played this Backdraft or whatever that Flashpoint game was? (laughs) Whatever it was, I forgot the name. But you played this with them, Chris? Absolutely. That is so awesome. And and they you know they think it's a little weird. I, I you know I, we go up to their house. They they live up in the mountains, so we'll go up there and we're kind of snowed in for the holidays, and we'll bring board games out because that's you know what you should do. And um, they will look at me sometimes. I brought out like Duck Duck Go, you know this little uh, rubber ducky racing game, and they just you know stared at me like I was crazy or something. But they were very supportive and they gave it a go. So. So speaking of staring at Chris Taylor like he's crazy, Bruce, I want to I want to lay out this scenario for you. Okay. Okay. Sure. You are you live in the same town as Chris Taylor by whatever accident of fate occurs. Calgary, Alberta. <laughs> uh, no, Chris, where are you? These you're you're down here in Southern California, right? Southern California, Orange County. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's not unreasonable that a fellow like Bruce Garrick would live in Orange County, the hotbed, the only bed of Republicanism in California. Mm-hmm. Bruce Garrick would be down there with his neoconservative buddies, and mm-hmm. Bruce, you get like maybe a handwritten invitation and uh, delivered to you by Chris Taylor's uh, aide de camp, mm-hmm. and the handwritten invitation says, "Bruce Garrick, you are cordially invited to a game of Arkham Horror at mm-hmm. my house. Mm-hmm. How do you respond?" Uh, creepily. Um, uh, so I would, I'd be, I'd be totally down with playing, uh, playing Arkham Horror Ugh. as long as we weren't in, in, in cosplay or anything like that. Uh, but uh, not that I know what that is. I just read it. I heard about it on the McNeil Air Report. But um, the, um, uh, I, I know, I know where you're going with this, and I, uh-huh. I, I don't really 
um, care for the design of Arkham Horror, um, but I do love the Cthulhu mythos, and I would, I, I enjoy that kind of social game with a bunch of people who are also into Cthulhu. Otherwise, they wouldn't be playing Arkham Horror because it's not really that good a game design. Um, and just kind of going through, it's a story, right? I mean, it's a story about you draw the cards and you read, you know, the way, Tom, the way you always have us play is that you have us read the text. Everybody who draws, you know, the card is to read the text. <laughs> well, not quite, to... right. Not, no, close. The rule in my house, yeah. if we were to ever play Arkham Horror, which I don't foresee ever happening again, but yeah. the rule here is that someone has to read the text to you. You don't get to it, – it's not enough that you read the text out loud. The text oh, has right, to be yes, read yes. to I, you. I remember that, yes. No, yeah. Yes, so I, it's I like someone that. delivering a story to you, and it also then involves someone whose turn it isn't. Because right. in my house, you know, people will sit around and they'll check their freaking iPhones or whatever <laughs> when it's somebody else's turn. And I, right. I hate games that don't involve people constantly. So, Bruce, if it's your turn and you draw a card, Chris, you have to read Bruce's card to him. <laughs> so it's that kind of gimmick. That's cool. Um, That's great. But I well, love Arkhamar. I, I wish yeah. we could get it to the table more often because I think it's a very thematic game. I think it tells a great story. It's just overly yep. long. It's That's overly great. long. And, and here's my problem, Chris, with Arkham Horror and sort of what I was getting at with talking about co-op gaming. I don't like cooperative gaming that you could just as easily play alone. And you mentioned that, I think, earlier, Chris, when you were talking about, I think it was the Rainer Canizia Lord of the Rings. Um, I feel that any game where, you know, you mentioned one person driving the action, where it could work that way, where my role there is just kind of like, where there's no contention or secret information, uh, specifically like a traitor mechanic, um, I, I just lose interest in, in just simple, straight-up co-op gaming like that. Uh, I just feel like there are better ways we could spend our time gaming, and they often have to involve somebody trying to beat someone else for Con- me. Considering that I've made my children cry... <laughs> Uh, sometimes playing a peer cooperative game, like we'll play uh, the Camelot uh, right. co-op without the traitor. Um, oh, you're just, oh, Chris. Uh. No, 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 just, hey, this is a family thing. We'll do it sometime. I mean, then we'll absolutely, you know, the traitor makes it better. And, and Battlestar Galactica is probably one of my favorite uh, traitor games because yes. it's, it's dripping with theme and the traitor works really well. And I, I love it. But playing a, a peer co-op sometimes with the family is just a nice way to relax. But yeah, it, I, I really do think that if you have a, a co-op game that makes it so one person can play the game for everybody, if, you know, if you, it depends upon the group of people that you play with. I played um, the Lord of the Rings, the Kinesia Lord of the Rings co-op game at a convention once, and we had this person, it was like, Three of my friends and then this one other guy walked up. And the one other guy sat there in the whole game. He was poo-pawing every move we made. <laughs> he was, you know, doing things against the grain so he could be completely selfish and keep himself alive. At the, you know, And it was like he wasn't working. And it was a terrible experience. And right. it was like the worst. And it really depends upon who you play with. And that, so, so to, to your point, I absolutely agree with you if you're trying to, like, involve family or kids or whatever, people who don't normally play board games, I'm totally down with that. But for instance, if you and me and and Bruce were to sit down and play a board game, Arkham Horror would be one of the last ones I'd ever want us to play, because mm-hmm. I would kind of want to go head-to-head with you guys. Like, I'd want it to be somehow a contest of wits or whatever, or more specifically, like with Battlestar Galactica, a game about psychology. Uh, you know, that's Battlestar Galactica ruined Arkham Horror for me. Um in that I just have no desire to do that sort of co-op thing unless there's some kind of hidden information or or dramatic tension going there against something other than a system. 
Yeah. What about games that are one against many? We've been playing a lot of the Sense Second Edition, you know. So you have like one Overlord character versus all the players, and it's but it's it's obvious. It's you know on the table. Uh, Wait, Second the, Edition of what? Of the Lord of the uh, Rings thing? Uh, no, Descent, the uh, dungeon game from. Fantasy. Oh, oh yeah. Ooh, I can't. I. I yeah, in theory, I love that. Like one against, one against many, I'm okay with that. Well, I say I'm okay with that, but why don't the other players? Like, do you need multiple players as the many? Like there, I sort of feel like it's the same thing. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just too finicky. Bruce, how are you? Are you okay with one against the many if it's a bunch of us pitted against you? Uh, you mean in, in terms of a in terms of the the multiplayer mechanic, or are, talk, are we talking about the, like a a um, solitaire like trader mechanic? Uh, like like the descent thing, like basically. Uh, you, well, I'm not familiar the, with that game, so. I, well, the handwritten invitation you now get from from Chris, <laughs> instead of inviting you to Arkham Horror, is inviting you to. It's the board gaming equivalent of like I guess DMing, maybe Chris. Is that a good it's, way to put it's it? It's basically the a board game version of Dungeons and Dragons. You have one player who's the overlord. He controls all the monsters. He drives the narrative. He sets up the board, and then you've got the players each player is usually playing one or two characters, you know, um, the elf, the dwarf, the magician, all that good stuff. It's typical fantasy stuff. So it's magic and, realm. But it's but they're all working together against the overlord. And the right. overlord's not it's not unlike D D, which is a cooperative storytelling right. experience. To say you've got two sides trying to crush each other. And um, we play a lot of one against many, but we usually I don't say they lead to bad blood, but I, I would prefer I think <laughs> times to play uh, you know, trader games. You know, anything in my, you know, just because it's you have one person who has to fend off three or four other people, and if the one person wins, like I play we, when we play Descent, I'm usually the Overlord, and I usually win, and I feel bad afterwards because I've, you know, I've made three or four people at the table lose, and that's it seems unequal, you know. Nah. Well, I mean, if you if you play a five player game and you win, you've made four people lose. So I'm not sure how that uh, is different, but uh, I'm not. I don't. You know, I I am I'm, I'm all for. Uh, first of all, I'm all for Tom losing, and uh, and second of all, I'm uh, so I, you know any game where that happens is probably a good design. And second of all, um, you know I don't really I don't really mind. Um, there, I mean, there are a lot of things that go into whether I uh, am going to enjoy a game or not, um, but uh, one of them generally is not. Um, whether I feel ganged up on, uh, that's fine as long as the game mechanics allow me to get being ganged up. What I don't like is uh, multiplayer games which allow, um, and there are some war games like this that really don't work unless you play them in a very specific way, like Empires in Arms doesn't work because uh, you know everybody ganks up on France and there's nothing you can do about it. But um, games that allow uh, players to gang up on other players and just arbitrarily to sort of thin the thin the herd. And uh, no matter what you do, you can't. There's no. There's no, really no downside for people. Um, uh, although I guess diplomacy is kind of that way too, and I do enjoy that game. So, gosh, I, I I don't have a system. I guess I'm just a really logical person. So, whatever handwritten invitation you get from Chris Bruce, you're just going to show up and not balk, and you'll basically try your game for pretty much anything. Uh, yes, balk. What Maybe about balk? B a u l k. Not yeah. balk. <laughs> Okay. What, what what about when Chris sends you an Im- invitation to help him break in his new copy of uh, Monopoly that he just bought? Uh, if it's uh, if it's a Star Wars Monopoly, then I'm all for it. 
Ah, uh, Bruce knows there's a Star Wars monopoly. Well, you bring up there the themed games like Risk. I much prefer the themed versions of Risk, like the Star Wars Risk, mm-hmm. to the regular Risk because I think Risk is a pretty good game. It can run a little long, but it's I've played it so much that I'm kind of tired of. It. But the themed versions really, even though it's the same basic game, because it's got that strong theme in it, I, I, that's much more fun to play. Yeah. Have you played, I think it's called Risk Black Ops or something, but there's a version of mm-hmm. Risk that gives you uh, victory conditions. And when you get a victory condition, you get a little tag. And the first person to get three tags wins. So when you're getting tags, the other people start ganging up on you, and they can steal the tags from you. Uh, it, it basically is Risk, but without the drawn-out grind. Yeah. Uh, and we, we informally call it Lightning Risk at my house because it can be over v- very quickly. Uh, have you tried that, Chris? I have, and I much prefer it to the original version of Risk, I think, because it because it puts in some timers that say the game will only run this long. Right. Um, you know, I, when I was a kid, I used to play Starfleet Battles for 12 hours a day or play Car Wars <laughs> and, you know, play eight hours and get four seconds of actual game time done. And I could deal with that because I was a kid. But as I've gotten older, my attention span is a lot shorter. And I want games that have a beginning, middle and end. And I can play a couple of them a night with my friends and sit around and socialize and BS afterwards. Yeah. And so games that have built in timers, I think, are much better than games that can run for endless amounts of time. Uh, let me ask you about two classics that uh, I cannot stand and have no desire to ever play again, but they're classics and people love them. Uh, Bruce mentioned one of them earlier. Uh, how do you currently feel about Puerto Rico? You know, I have a um, sinful tale to tell of Puerto Rico. I've only played mm-hmm. it once, and I didn't really like it then, and um, I've never gone back to it. So I, it's been eight years since I've played it, at least. Um, You've made the right choice. <laughs> and but it's they did a card version. I'm trying San to Juan. San Juan and San Juan is wonderful. I enjoy San Juan. I played it a lot on the computer. It was great. Yeah, and you know I think I would rather play San Juan than, than Puerto Rico because yeah, it's just a quick little uh, card game. Um, well, right. things that you don't de- you, your move doesn't depend so much on the you, the consequences of your move don't affect other people so much in San Juan. That's the problem. That's the problem with Puerto Rico is that that you can you can unwittingly set in motion a huge cascade of events that uh, that doesn't that, that you then feel like you, if you make the wrong decision, you've just given a whole bunch of people a whole bunch of things you didn't right. want them to get because you didn't think through your move uh, and it leads to a lot of analysis paralysis. I don't and think it, and that I cannot abide analysis paralysis. I, I in, much enjoy games when there's you know little downtime and we're just playing. Because to me, it, it, what's actually happening on the board, as long as it's fun and enjoyable or whatever. I'm far more interested in being there with my friends and socializing and stuff. And I don't want to spend, you know, half an hour in silence pondering my next right. move. Right? <laughs> don't, that's no fun. And for that reason, by the way, Chris, that's another instance of, I'm, I'm going to now mention what I think is the best worker placement game. But, and I own a copy of it, and I, I love, I admire and respect and, and, and indeed cherish the design. I think it's so well done. But because of that analysis paralysis, I would much rather play something more fluffy like Cyclades or Stone Age with my friends. But I think the best worker placement game that's ever been made, and I love this thing, uh, is Dominant Species, mm-hmm. which uh, great theming. Uh, I love the look of it. I love the asymmetry. Uh, I love the way that it's worker placement as well as territory conquest. I love how dramatically the board shifts. But, man, it just shuts down all social interaction when you're playing with your friends. Everybody just sort of sticks their nose in the board and ignores everybody else uh, for the, for the most part. Uh, it, it's it's almost painful. 
Um, did, do you know Dominant Species, Chris? Uh, I, you know, I know of it. I'm very aware of it. I've never played it. And the main reason is that is they use Comic Sans as their font. And I couldn't what? look at the cards. <laughs> Wait a minute. What? That's as, that's as goofy as something Bruce would say. What's wrong? I, I, it's true. I, I, they, did, they used Comic Sans in their graphic design. And I took one look at it and I said, I'm sorry. I just can't play that. I have a personal vendetta against Comic Sans. Wait, what? why do you hate a font? Who could hate a font? I, I, you know, it's one of these irrational things that makes us human. Like like Bruce supporting uh, President Bush. Oh God! <laughs> I get it then. Excellent. All right. Then. Uh, and then finally, uh, Chris, the last game that that I hate that uh, a lot of other people love. My own personal vendetta here. Uh, why would anyone ever want to play Power Grid? Oh, don't say that. I love that game. <laughs> I'm, I'm so you're looking at my Power Grid boxes. They're staring at me on the shelf. I think it's a wonderful game. You're one of them. <laughs> what you know. One, it's got a, it's got a bunch of maps, and it's you know you're playing all around the world. But B, you know it's just neat seeing the resources come and go, and then it's deceptively screwful. You can really mess with other players. Yeah, you can. So I, you know, for me, it's just it, it's too much math. It makes my head hurt, and I, 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 I don't, I'm not at all just being sort of self-deprecating to be cute or anything, but I honestly feel when I play Power Grid that I'm too dumb for this game. <laughs> it's just is like I. I recognize my limitations, and Power Grid is one of them. Yeah, you know, that has been really successful with my family. My kids really enjoy it. I don't oh, know. Yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. Driest... Go ahead. File on, Chris. Way yeah. to stick it to Tom there. Yeah. No, no. I'm just saying it's the driest theme. It really, I mean, you're building, you know, Power Grid infrastructure, right? Putting up power plants and turning them on. But my kids really enjoy it. I'm not, I'm not sure why, but we'll play it. Absolutely, we'll play the game, and we enjoy it quite a bit. You... That's okay, though, that you don't like it. I, You know, I've played... I played a game of Power Grid with, with a few people that I don't really play games with, and they had played a lot, and they were much better than I was. And I felt the entire game, from from the second turn, I had no chance. And I still enjoyed it, but it does, you know, they spent a long time making their moves, and it wasn't the best gaming session. And I can see if you, hit, if you had that happen often, how you would not enjoy the game. Uh, well, then finally, Chris, in closing, I want you, I've, I've sat here and been a bah humbug board gamer. What is a game that everybody loves, Chris, that you hate? Oh, Tigris and Euphrates. Aha, see, Bruce? That's a crime. Yeah, so I want to hear this because I love, I normally like dry, uh, abstract Reiner Kinesia things. A lot of them bounce off of me, but I think I love Tigers and Euphrates. And that's another one, by the way, that I feel like I'm too dumb to play. But unlike Power Grid, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with Tigers and Euphrates running away from me and the game suddenly ends and I've lost miserably, even though I had no idea it was going to happen. Uh, so why does, why is that one that doesn't work for you, Chris? Well, one is I have, for some reason, I have great difficulty in seeing the way things connect and are placed, and I have no idea what a good move is. I will pull a tile and I'll just stare at it in, in comprehension. And I think part of it is the symbols and the colors, and my brain just got this disconnect. Um, I mean, I think it's great that people like it, but I will turn I will turn that game down. I, it's just one of those games I just don't want to play. And it's mostly because every time I've played it, I've really felt like I've played it once to learn the rules. I played it usually. I play a game once to learn the rules. Play it twice to kind of get a handle on the strategy. And by the third time I play it, I kind of figure out what I'm doing. In TNE, I can foresee the future no matter how many times I play it. I'm never going to understand how to play the game. So I just don't like it. Uh, there you go, Bruce. Do you have one that I think I might know an answer to this? What's the game that everybody loves that you hate, Bruce? Oh, well, apparently Kingsburg. Uh... <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, um, game that every uh, let's see, um, StarCraft Two. No, I can't uh, can't think of anything. I mean, I love all games, so I'm not really sure why I would hate anything. Um, I guess what don't I ever? What don't I like playing when people want to power? I, w- I actually would have said Power Grid because I, I really don't like the game. There's a friend of mine used to love Power Grid, and he'd always want to play, and we play on Brett Spielbelt, and I just hated it. I finally just just refused to play anymore. Um, um, gee whiz, boy, you really stumped me there, Tom. How about Kalis? No, I like Kalis. No, no, uh, I'm with you on Kalis because Kalis, again, I think you know it's the granddaddy of worker placement games, mm-hmm. and I just feel it's been eclipsed. Kind of like the same thing with Magic. Oh, I know, I know the game. I know, huh? I know. Okay, yep, yep. Dominion. I Ooh, hate Dominion. Again, same thing. It's been eclipsed. They're way better deck building games. Chris, are yeah. you going to defend uh, Dominion against Bruce Garrix? Here, here's, the, I mean, I kind of I, first Dominion comes out, the base set. I probably played it. A hundred times. The next expansion comes out, I probably played that one 80 times. And the next one comes out, I played it 60 times. It's just, each new expansion doesn't really invigorate the game, unlike Magic, maybe, or something like that. Um, I would, there are better deck building games now, but Dominion still, I, I wouldn't turn it down. I wouldn't turn down a game of Kalos, but I'd rather play something like Lords of Waterdeep. Or, um, Manhattan Project. I like that one too, for worker build, for worker placement. Which, which one, Chris? Manhattan Project. Oh yeah, I've had a friend who's trying to sell me on that. Uh, when you okay. you know, the theme's great. The graphic design's wonderful. It's pretty basic as far as worker placement games go. It's got a few clever little mechanisms, but it's probably not as good of a game as Kalis. But Kalis, maybe it's just the presentation, but there's something so dry about it. And then it's really prone to AP. The uh, few times I've played it recently, one player or two players will re- really bring that game down. I would be one of those. Yeah, I can't. I, that's when I just, yeah, Kalis. And again, I just feel, I, you know, I'd rather play, for instance, here's a game that Bruce broke for me. So I get this. I, I get I get an mm-hmm. iPad version of this game, and I play it, and I'm like, hey, this is cool. I'm going to get the actual analog version and play it with my buddies. Uh, Bruce Garrick's visiting, and he's like, yeah, let's play this game. And his whole agenda is to demonstrate to me how it is broken which he then successfully demonstrates and kills all interest I have in the game. And that game is, cruelly killed by Bruce Garrick, uh, Stone Age. Ooh. Are you okay with Stone Age, Chris? Cause if, I if think you Stone are, Age is a pretty, pretty good game. Uh, the cup was a little stinky in the version I played. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're not supposed to smell it. Do not put your nose on that weird yeah. little cup. <laughs> uh, and- you know, I've got the I've got the iPad version of it, and I've been playing that recently. And I, I think I like it better as an iPad game than I do as a board game. I wouldn't turn it down, but I'd rather. There's other games that I'd rather play. Right. Well, if you ever want to be completely turned off of uh, Stone Age, let Bruce Garrick play a two-player game with Bruce Garrick. He'll <laughs> he'll show you that. Yeah, there's an optimal strategy. This game is broken. The design sucks. And afterwards, I agreed with him. I didn't nice say that till afterwards, though, so I can feel I know, yeah, exactly. That's the whole thing. He was, like, snickering quietly the whole time uh, with this agenda in mind, and I just thought we were playing a game. And, no, Bruce had the goal in mind to destroy Stone Age for me, and he succeeded. It, it was very <laughs> oh, cool. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. So, uh, Chris, can you tell us anything about, like, what kind of things you're working on these days? What is Chris Taylor creating for us next? Uh, I'm doing more games for Victory Point. I really like those guys over there. It's, it's kind of fun because they um, – uh, unlike my day job, they give me a lot of freedom, so I get to do kind of whatever I want to do, and it's very liberating. And they get new toys that they let me play with, like laser cutters and stuff like that. Um, so I'm doing a game uh, called Dinosaurs and Devil Dogs. It's a solitaire game of a 
fire team of U.S. Marines that get sent back in time and they have to fight off all sorts of nasty creatures like dinosaurs and Nazis and, you know, samurai and uh, as they move from time portal to time portal. Holy um, cats! What? I, I, that's just... I, I would have talked to you about that for an hour and a half if I'd known yeah, that. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, and then after that, I'm, I've got my long gestating design called Marooned in development, and that is a uh, 1930s golden sci-fi pulpy uh, adventure game where you play castaways and crew uh, from a wrecked spaceship on this hostile alien world. And it's a semi-cooperative game. You're trying to score um, victory points by succeeding at encounters and events and surviving to tell your tale to the media once you get back. Is there a trader mechanic where I can ensure that Bruce Garrick dies? Um, no, but there's ways of screwing people over subtly by sending them bad things. But if they succeed at it, then they earn additional victory points and stuff like that. The neat thing about it, you've got these different archetypes. Like you've got the captain and the scientist and the engineer and the psychic and the politician. And they all have different abilities. And you get randomly dealt these characters at the beginning of the game. And then you, they each have uh, specific abilities that you can use throughout the game, except for the politician who's completely useless, uh, but he's worth more victory points if you get him back at the end because he gets in front of the media and hogs up all the time. Um, That's so it's, I, I love the sound of that. That's awesome. Bruce, you have to be the politician. Sold. They, they do, you, you do get companions. The one benefit that the politi- politician is is that you have companion cards, which represent like the waiter or the reporter or the priest or the, the ship's dog or whatever, a you know, minor character. And the companions, you um, they have a small little power that you can use, nothing really big, but you can discard them anytime you get into a fight to cancel the fight. And it basically represents you kind of shoving this person out there, sacrificing them, while the rest of your people run away. And the politician gets more companions than anybody else. You know what? I would, ne- yeah, I will never play Arkham Horror again as long as you're making stuff like this. That sounds awesome, Chris. Uh, so, uh, Dinosaurs and Devil Dogs from Victory Point Games, mm-hmm. and is Marooned also something you're doing with Victory Point, or is that elsewhere? Marooned is with Victory Point. Um, I uh, have, you know, I do a lot of game designs. I like making prototypes. It's to me, it's just a hobby. So I'll make a prototype, and because Victory Point's been so nice to me, they let me use their their equipment. So I make a lot of games for them just because it's convenient. I would like to branch out at some point and do some bigger games. I've talked to GMT a little bit, lock and load, but nothing's really, uh, nothing's really clicked because of my, my day job being so busy. And this is just a little hobby for me, but as long as it's fun, I'm going to keep making games. And when you talk about a second edition of Nemo's War, is that a pie-in-the-sky sort of thing? Is there is there any uh, – is that a real threat, Chris? That is a real threat. That is something that we are actively working on. Um, it turns out that making a second edition or a gold banner game for one of our, our earlier Victory Punk games is just about as much work as it is making a new game. So it's not coming along as quickly as I would like, but it is something that I'm working with Alan Emmerich, and we're kind of redeveloping, and we're going to fix a few small little things, and then obviously it'll get the, the big graphic redesign, and it'll be on the much nicer components with better cards and better counters. Uh, but it, it is it is definitely in the pipeline. That will be the, the first of my old games to be redone. And I'm really excited about it because I do think Nemo's War is a, is a is a solid game. It's a fun game. I'm so pleased that people play it, and enjoy it to this day, and I would like to see it done to the you know best of, that it can be. Yeah, and I, I think Bruce and I agree, and I would go so far as to say you're lowballing it. Nemo's War is a freaking brilliant game. Uh, so I agree. Thank so, Chris, thank you for uh, hanging out and talking with us today. That is awesome. Give a quick plug for what is the uh, – you mentioned an Orange County board gaming group that you sometimes play with. Who, uh-huh. What was that group? 
Uh, it's the Orange County Board Game Association, something okay. like that. I forgot their name real bad. Um, it's the OCBGA. Um, they've got a meetup, uh, and they get together uh, one Saturday every every month. We play at the Duck Club, and uh, it, about you know sixty people show up, something like that. It's a lot of fun. Awesome, good. All right, well, Chris, thank you so much. We are looking forward to. Uh, Devil Dogs and Dinosaurs, Marooned, and a second edition of Nemo's War, hopefully uh, in the near future. Best of luck with all of those. Thank you so very much. In the town where I was born Lived a man who sailed to sea And he told us of his life In the land of submarines So we sailed unto the sun Yeah.